Thank you so much to the committee and for Tammy for being such a wonderful host. And I also want to thank um, Alice for picking us up at um, the Nashville airport. I kind of surprised her and I said, um, I got on an earlier flight. So she was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to leave Bowling Green now. <laughs> my name is Anu and I am a grateful recovering member of the Al-Anon family groups that includes Alateen. Um, my uh, home group is the One Purpose Al-Anon Family Group. Uh, we meet on Thursday nights at 8 o'clock Eastern Time, and we have a hybrid meeting, so you all are welcome to join us. And um, we meet in Charlotte, North Carolina. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know if the, if the child wants to go to Charlotte, but you're welcome to come. <laughs> we have a really good Alateen program. My first meeting of Al-Anon was February 4th, 2008, and I am forever grateful for continuing to come since then. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about how it was and um, what happened that brought me to Al-Anon, and I want to spend more time in recovery because I think how we got here is mi minorly important, but really what we do here in recovery is what's most important. And then this afternoon, um, you know, I'm co-hosting a workshop on traditions and concepts. And so I look forward to seeing you there. So as y'all can guess, I'm not from around here. Um, I was born in India um, to a, um, I was an only child to a, you know, brilliant set of parents. My father was an engineer and my mom was brilliant, artistic, and, you know, she sang, played music, and, um, you know, was interested in spiritual stuff and did art and everything. So she's, you know, she gave me so many artistic abilities that I am so grateful. And we were affected by alcoholism. My father was an alcoholic. I did, he never drank in front of me, so I never knew that he was an alcoholic, but my uncles tell me that, you know, he was a binge drinker. And um, I just knew that dad raged. You know, dad would come, you know, he was living far away from where we were, and he would come every six months, and it was chaos when he came. Um, he would just get mad at mom, and I would try to kind of escape his, his temper. He had these soft hands. I loved sitting in his lap and feeling his soft hands around me. And then it got uncomfortable because he lost it at like a moment's notice. Something would trigger and he would just fly into rages and then it got very uncomfortable being in his lap. And those, so those soft hands I associated with sort of temporary, not permanent, you know, affection and love. And um, he grew up with a very violent father, so, you know, he was doing the best he could. Now I understand that. I didn't understand. I grew up hating my father. Um, my mom, on the other hand, um, she had two brothers that were alcoholics, and her mother had two brothers that were alcoholics. So she was taught generationally how to care for other people, how to tell white lies, how to do for others what they could be doing for themselves. And she taught me the best way she could. And so um, I remember growing up and, you know, learning how to 
do things for other people. Most of the time I was doing things for men in my life. So, um, And I grew up with a very violent view of, you know, marriages where the man was, um, you know, abusive and the woman was docile. I mean, that's kind of what I grew up with. So um, my dad actually wanted a son, but he never made me feel like I was wrong for being a girl. Um, He just wanted me to be better than the girls and the boys. And so he just had very high standards. So I grew up thinking I was never enough. I was never good enough for dad. I was never smart enough. I didn't do enough. I didn't score high enough. Because, you know, I would score a 92 and come home and be like, Dad, I got an A in math. And he'd be like, what happened to the eight points? So that was what I grew up with. So um, my first, my, um, I finished my um, high school and went to college. I went to the top engineering college. I got a lot of accolades and stuff like that. Nothing touched me because I, I constantly had this, I'm not enough. And, you know, after a while, Dad never never really required or asked me about what happened to the eight points. I just had that in me, and I would ask myself. So I, I still have to, have to go back to my God and my sponsor to figure out if I'm trying to compensate for something that says, are you enough? So I went to college when I was 17, and... Um, it was, it was a top engineering college. It was really good. Um, but my family life fell apart. My mom had lived with my dad and his anger for a long time, and she was basically staying with him because, you know, I was growing up, in a, and she didn't want me to grow up in a broken household. And so my dad had uh, threatened her that if she divorces him, he would kill her. So she did the very next best th- that she thing that she could do, and she became an Indian nun. You know those people that wear orange clothes? Yeah, so she did that. She left everything from her previous uh, life. She, you know, moved into an ashram, which is like a monastery, and uh, she changed her name. And um, one of the requirements was that she was supposed to not have any contact with people from her prior life. Wait, um, all that was okay if she was leaving my dad, but it was not okay that she was leaving me. So I felt completely abandoned by my mom. Um, I was 17. I had never been away from home. I had always grown up around mom's skirts. Like, she taught me how to cross the street. She taught me how to travel. She taught me everything. And now she was gone. And I didn't know how to navigate life. And so I thought, okay, finally dad's going to show up because dad was distraught. He was crying and everything. And he, um, I thought it was going to be him and me. And about um, first semester in college, around November, um, my final exams were like three weeks away, and my dad said, hey, can you um, come to New Delhi, which was about five hours bus ride away, can you come to New Delhi and be a witness in our divorce case? And I was like, why are you divorcing mom? He said, oh, she's my beneficiary in life insurance policy, and they need something legal. And I was like, okay, that sounded legit. So um, I went uh, to New Delhi, and uh, I was a witness in the divorce case, and they, were, they granted the divorce. And um, the reason I was a witness is because my mom had written to me, and she had said, I, I'm loving my life, I'm loving this you know, um, life of prayer, and I'm never coming back. And so they needed me to be a witness My dad put me back on a bus because I was going back for finals. And uh, as the bus started moving, my dad had incredible timing. And he said, 
So you don't mind if I remarry, do you? Bottom fell out, y'all. I did not, I was like, okay, I'm an orphan now. You know, my, my mom was, you know, was the, the one person that was like a rock in my life. And my mom had gone. And I thought dad was going to substitute sort of for her. But he didn't. So I mumbled something um, that was like, yeah, sure, whatever. Um, but then uh, as the bus was leaving, it was a five-hour uh, ride. And for four and a half hours, I cried. And so in India, the um, buses have windows that you can open. So I opened the window and because, you know, one of the things I had learned growing up in my household of, like, violent men was you never cry. You never show vulnerability. So... So I was not going to show vulnerability, so I stuck my face out the bus window and just kept crying, and the tears went sideways so people couldn't see me, you know. And so I cried for about four and a half um, hours, feeling sorry for myself. Why is that happening to me? Why is this happening to me? And the last half hour, I got mad. Not at mom, not at dad. I got mad at God. So here's some background. In India, they believe in like 30,000 different gods and goddesses. I did not have a good concept of God, right? So there was, I don't know what God was, but there was whatever the God was, I felt like wasn't looking out for me. And so I was like, fine. If you are, you know, if this is what you can do, I got this. I don't need to depend on you. You'll never have a problem with Anu. You'll never need to come and rescue me. I got this. I'm going to take care of it. I'm the only one that I've got. So now looking back, now that I have a God of my understanding, I'm so grateful that my God allowed me to divorce him temporarily so that I could make something of my life, and then I would find him when it was time. You know, I'm so grateful. So anyway, self-will run riot. At that time, I went in and um, I um, studied hard and didn't do any of the alcohol or drugs that were going on on campus because, you know, I would have to then have God rescue me, which is, you know, which is terrible. So I studied hard, did really well at engineering college, and uh, graduated with, you know, in the top ten. Well, I fell in love. I fell in love with this guy who was a rebel. He was an angry young man. He never got angry at me, but he was angry at the system. And he would always be like, you know, railing against the system. And, you know, um, so, yeah, we had a great time. He, um, all he ever wanted to do was come to America. I didn't know what this was about because I was going to grow up. I was going to be, you know, probably get married, have a couple kids, like teach in a college or something like that. I was going to live in India. That was, that was my thing, right? He wanted nothing more than come to America. America this, America this, and that. And all, all I ever heard at our dates was America this. And so I did some research, and I was like, okay, if he's going to America, you know, the romantic thing would be both of us go as students, and then, you know, we, we finish our graduate school, and then we get married. You know, that was going to be our love story. So we studied to come to America. We studied and took the GREs and, and everything. Um, and uh, I did really well. He didn't. <laughs> I came to America in 1989. <laughs> I went to UNC Chapel Hill, go Tar Heels. 
<laughs> he stayed back in India because he didn't even he didn't even get um, any scholarships or anything like that. And so, but you know, it was my job to help him achieve his dreams. So two semesters later, I went back, married him, and brought him back because that way he could come, right? <sighs> well. What I didn't realize is that he grew up in a family where the men were violent and the women were docile. And I was trying to recreate my dad and me and, you know, trying to set this straight. So he changed. The day we got married, he changed. And he had never been angry at me and he had never been violent towards me and he changed. Within six months, I knew it was a mistake. But, you know, now we had a whole bunch of stuff happening, right? Because he had come to America, he was on a dependent visa, and I couldn't, like, you know, couldn't jeopardize and have to send him back. You know, that was not going to work. So um, there was emotional abuse and verbal abuse in the marriage. And later on, about three years into it, there was uh, physical abuse in there. And I just kind of, you know, tolerated it because I figured that was the best that could happen. I thought we would have a baby and that would fix it, right? So <laughs> we tried, um, no baby. And then I went to student health and uh, in the meantime I had finished my PhD and everything. And so I went to student health and I, you know, they sent me to four different fertility doctors and they told me that I had some conditions that would make it almost impossible or very difficult for me to have a baby. And if I wanted to have a baby, I would have to go through fertility treatments. And um, by then, my marriage was pretty much downhill at that time. So, you know, I didn't do anything about that. And um, in about six years after the marriage, I left him and I moved to Texas for a job. And uh, I divorced him in, you know, 1998. And, but in the meantime, I went to a self-improvement workshop when I went to move to Texas and in that self-improvement workshop, I was working through whatever unresolved issues that I had with my dad that caused me to marry somebody just like my dad. And uh, right there, I was, you know, I was at one of the seminars, and I, I met this shy guy. His, he said his name was Gary, and he stood off in a corner. I tried to go, like, rescue him, and he didn't want to talk much, so I said, fine, whatever. Um, <laughs> but we kept crossing paths with each other and everything. And so um, after I got my divorce, um, we went out on a date and uh, in March 1998. And this March will be 25 years. So we went out on a date, and it was, it was wonderful. We stared into each other's eyes. He had a glass of wine. I had a glass of wine, and we stared into each other's eyes. I remember I was picking up a piece of salad, and, like, it fell, and I just had this, like, fork that went into my mouth. We both laughed, and it was so cute. <laughs> Later on, he told me he was an alcoholic. He had been in AA for five years, and he had not been in AA for five years. So I figured AA fixed him. Because, you know, I mean, he was drinking, you know, his wine. He was not reaching over drinking mine. He was not acting crazy. You know, I mean, he was fine. So, yeah. So, anyway, so that was, that was my intro to Alcoholics uh, Anonymous. And I was like, I don't know. They must have fixed it. So, uh, apparently, you can drink in moderation. We moved fast. So within about a month, he had uh, moved in, and um, I discovered um, about a month and a half into our um, dating that uh, 
I was pregnant. And I discovered it because I stopped my birth control pills and nothing happened. So, apparently this miracle baby was some, something that was meant to be. And uh, in December of 1998, we had a beautiful, beautiful baby. Um, little baby girl. You know, she got the best of, you know, both of us. So Gary's white, uh, and she got the best of his, um, you know, his fingers and toes, and she got the best of my um, skin, skin tone and no skin issues and stuff like that. And she had big brown eyes and beautiful and loved me from the moment she saw me. And we made sure that, you know, she... um, was near me from the moment that she was born so that she knew that mom was always going to be there. And it was, it was just gorgeous. Oh, my God. It was so beautiful. Um, I told him I wasn't going to have another baby because, you know, I didn't like being pregnant, but I loved my baby. So she was a bright child and intelligent and um, smart and so sensitive and so observant and just loving, so loving. The, you know, her world revolved around me. You know, and it was um, it was wonderful. It was wonderful to have the adoration of this child, you know. And I turned into my dad. She would do something, and I would lose it in a moment. What would happen, and this is now that I know and I'm clinically kind of looking at it, um, what would happen is she would do something and, um, like, make a mistake or spill something or whatever, you know, whatever kids do. And it would, something would trigger, and I would have this, like, white-hot rage that would start from the back of my neck, and it would just fill up my head. And every sane thought would leave my head. And what was there was this gift of communication that God has blessed me with. And I would choose the cruelest, choicest words and, and say those. I was so cruel. And I would see those big brown eyes fill up with tears. And, and I knew that that was, I did not mean half the stuff that I said. And actually, I didn't mean most of the stuff that I said. But I didn't want to, you know, take it back. And I would feel guilty and I would walk away because, you know, if you take it back, you know, you, they, they don't learn discipline or something like that. I don't know. I had some flawed ideas about discipline. So... Yeah, I would, I would walk away, and I would feel very guilty, and I would try to justify why she brought that on, my, uh, on herself. And, and then I would try to buy her affection. You know, I would try to buy all kinds of gifts. I have never known a limit when it comes to, to buying gifts for her. And, uh, and so, you know, that's what I would do. I would, I would buy her affection. And so, you know, in uh, 2003, we moved to Charlotte, North Carolina for my job, and my husband had become a a stay-at-home dad, and, uh, you know, his drinking had intensified. He only drank wine, so I figured maybe he wasn't an alcoholic. And then he would, you know, he had gotten to the point of drinking about a liter and a half a day, and uh, he would just, he would embarrass me. He would talk for too long, he would sway for too long, and he would have this, like, he drank red wine, so he would have this, like, you know, red sort of stuff in the inside of his lip, and it was really annoying, really embarrassing to me, you know. And, and he would repeat the same thing that he was saying, and I was just, he embarrassed me, you know. And, and so we stopped going out and, uh, you know, mixing with, like, my coworkers because I was embarrassed to take him there. 
Um, and so we became very isolated when we moved to Charlotte. And he was from Texas, so he all his family was in Texas. And so nobody, you know, obviously only his mother moved, um, moved to Charlotte area. But everybody else was in Texas. And so he didn't have any friends. He didn't have any other family. He started drinking a lot. And I intensified in my um, anger. I would kick doors. I would um, scream, yell. I remember calling him a brick wall because he didn't express anything. He was he would not feel anything. I felt like he didn't feel anything. I would yell at my child. It just was nightmare. 2007, my mom moved in um, because she had started having problems breathing in India. And so I said, Mom, it's better for you to move here and be alive rather than be in India and just you know, pass away. And so she moved in and, you know, she kind of maintained her lifestyle of like having her own room and have doing her own thing. But at least she was alive. And I'm so grateful that she moved. In 2008, my mom came to me and said, um, you know, Gary loves you a lot. I'm like, yeah. Um, you know, Gary loves our, your, you know, he's a good father. I said, okay. Turns out it was a euphemism for Gary had gone to the ABC store and taken our daughter with him and said, you know, bought some hard liquor and said, don't tell mom. So that was the whole story. Um, Normally, I would scream, yell, kick doors, all that kind of stuff. I went to him. It was as if all the fight left me. I went to him and I said, you know, I don't know what's going on, but I think alcohol controls you. I think you are making choices. We have already decided that our child is, is going to need to be telling the truth to us and not hide things from one parent or, or the other parent. And now you're telling our child not to say something. And so I think alcohol controls you. Why don't you go back to your friends in AA? Because I don't know what to do, but I can't live like this. He went to Alcoholics Anonymous um, that, that same week, and um, January 31st, 2008, and he's been sober ever since. And he felt like he had come home. I was like, great! He went to AA. It's going to be fixed. Everything is going to be fixed. Our family is going to be happy. He's going to be happy. Our family is going to be happy. We're going to be normal. Yeah. I come back home the next day. I'm driving in. We have a gravel driveway. So I'm driving in, and, uh, you know, the, the house is dark, except for my mom's room, and, you know, I knew um, my daughter is probably going to be hanging out with my mom. Every, the rest of the house is dark. I come in, and the living room is dark, and he's sitting there, and he's staring at a television that isn't on. And he just sits there, quietly, staring. And I can tell, like, from his, the way he's sitting, I can tell that he's furious. And I was like, oh, no. Did AA not work? What's going on? Why is he, why is he angry? Um, maybe I should ask him how AA is going. Maybe he will open up a little bit. Or maybe he will be so ticked off that I asked him about AA that I sent him to AA. Maybe, he, maybe I shouldn't mention AA. Oh, you know what? I am in corporate America, and it's always a drama every day. So uh, maybe I should tell him about my day in corporate America, and he will try to solve my problem, and he'll forget about how miserable he is, right? <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't do that because he is probably going to say, all you think about is yourself, you don't think about me. Maybe I should ask him what's for dinner. Maybe it would tick him off some more because then he would probably say, all you care about is dinner, you don't care about how I feel. Maybe, maybe I should go to the back and bring our daughter, and she is so ticklish, I'm going to tickle her, she's going to laugh, I will laugh, and he will laugh, and we'll all be happy again. Every single thought 
Every single thought from the time I walked in to the time I went to bed was how am I going to fix someone else because I am uncomfortable with the way that they are being. Every single thought. And I was like, oh my gosh. And so, you know, I finally went to sleep. Um, you know, I was, I was playing in the back with, you know, with our daughter and, and with my mom. And, but still, there was, in the back of my mind, there was this, like, hamster wheel, right? The next day, I come in, I'm driving in, and I'm like, okay, maybe this will be better at this today. Oh, no. Same dark room, same TV that's not on, and, you know, same angry stance. And it starts again. And it starts the moment I enter, and then it doesn't stop until I go to bed. The third day, it starts back from the edge of the driveway, you know, all this hamster wheel thing. And I was like, I am going to go crazy. This guy, I mean, he is taking whatever amount of time it's ta- you know, it takes for him to become happy as a sober alcoholic, but I am going to go crazy. So I thought, i got to do something. So I called a friend of mine who had, thank goodness, broken her anonymity, and she said um, she had been in AA, and she had talked about fa- friends and families of alcoholics. And so... I called her and I said, what is this thing that you were talking about for friends and families of alcoholics? She said, Al-Anon. I said, oh, okay. What, how do I get a hold of you know, where the meetings are and somebody from Al-Anon? And so somebody called and then I found out about the meeting and the first Monday of February, so January 31st was his sobriety date and February 4th was my first Al-Anon meeting because I was going nuts. I was going crazy. And so I went into this Al-Anon meeting, and it was a dear friend of mine, and she was a speaker, and it was a speaker meeting, and it was uh, Queen City uh, Monday Night Al-Anon Family Group, which is also hybrid, by the way. Um, and so I went to that meeting, and I'm, I sat in the back, and I listened to the speaker, and the speaker was talking about all these things that had happened. They heard there was jail, there was drug problem, alcohol problems, and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, your life sucks. You need to keep coming back. I'm going to come in, I maybe get some pointers, and then I'm going to go, because I don't have time for this, you know. But not judgmental at all. <laughs> so anyway, I, um, you know, I decided to uh, give it a try, because something I heard in there, um, they said keep coming back, and something I heard in there made me want to come back, you know. And uh, they, um, Queen City uh, Monday night had a uh, basics meeting, which is six weeks of, you know, Steps one, two, and three, and just the basic concepts of Al-Anon, like, you know, um, slogans and things like that. I remember hearing about detachment with love. I thought it meant divorce. And I was like, no, 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 no. We've already done the divorce thing, right, before. We're not going to do the divorce thing again. And um, so thank goodness the person that was talking about it, presenting it, said, here's how I practice detachment. I ask myself, if this person wasn't here doing the thing that they're doing or being the way they're being, what would I do? And I would go do that. I thought, okay, we got to try it. Because every time I was like, uh, you know, being in corporate America and being in this like metrics kind of thing, I was like, okay, I'm going to measure every day if I'm not getting value out of this because I don't have time for Al-Anon. I don't have time for these hour-long meetings multiple times a week. I don't know how y'all do it. So I was like... I'm not going to come back if I don't get value, right? So that evening, I'm, I'm trying to practice this. So um, I drive home, and, of course, the hamster wheel starts. Oh, no, what's going on? Is it, is it going to be dark? Is he sitting there? Is he angry? Yes, sure enough, it was dark. He was sitting there, and he was angry. And so I come in, and I ask 
something interrupts that hamster wheel, right? It was, okay, so if he wasn't sitting here doing what he's doing, being angry, being upset, having the stance of like really being ticked off, what would I do and go do that? Well, I would go to the back, I would change, I would fix something to eat, and I would go spend time with my mom and my child. Okay, maybe I should go do that. I did that, y'all. There was a moment of, of quiet in my head. I had never felt a moment of quiet in my head. My head was always going, always plotting, always thinking about what I was going to do, how I was going to fix something, how I was going to take care of something, right? I had this moment of nothing. I was like, oh my God, is this what serenity feels like? Okay, I'm coming back to Al-Anon because, you know, that was, that was amazing. And so, okay, one of the... So I attended basics meeting. There were like six-week me- um, cycles. I attended three cycles of them because I was a remedial student. Um, <laughs> Queen City Friday night had another three cycles, and I attended those too. Um, so 18 reps of, uh, or 18 weeks of basics meetings. Anyway, um, another one they were talking about is let go and let God. And I was like, okay, well, how does... So this person said, how I practice let go and let God is at night I say, all right, God, I'm going to give you this thing because you're going to be up all night anyway. I'm going to give you this thing. And then I go to sleep. And then in the morning, I ask myself if I should pick it back up. And I take it if if I want to pick it back up. Otherwise, I can give it to God. I was like, okay, okay. So my child is nine at that point. Okay. So I had always been obsessing about where my daughter was going to go to college because I wanted her to go to UNC Chapel Hill because, you know, well, why not? So that night, I was like, for one night only, God, you are going to get this responsibility of where my child is going to go to college. And so I was like, okay, I let go and I let God and I go to sleep, right? I did not sleep all night obsessing about where my child was going to go to college and whether my child was going to decide not to go to college in UNC Chapel Hill, which eventually my child did, which is like, oh, great, thanks. But, you know, I knew that I could not let go and let God the way that I defined God. So um, y'all told me I needed to get, um, get a sponsor, and I got a sponsor and started working my steps. My sponsor also wanted me to read um, you know, the, the big book to understand about the alcoholic. And uh, she also asked me to buy the One Day at a Time in Al-Anon, the ODAT. I bought those. I called her, and I said, I can't read those. She said, what happened? She thought maybe I didn't want to read the big book because it was the book for Alcoholics Anonymous, but she was like, what's wrong with the ODAT? Why wouldn't you read that? Times New Roman font. I hate Times New Roman font. I hate it. Like, even to this day, if somebody sends me a document in Times New Roman font, I select the whole thing, change it to Arial, and I can read it. Okay? So if you're handing me anything, don't hand me Times New Roman. Just saying. I got off my butt and actually read them. But anyway... um, you know, in step one, I could see that my life was unmanageable. My, my household was crazy. I still have this door where I kicked it, and there's a black mark on it. You know, I knew that my household was crazy. I was going to do my steps one step a week, and in 12 steps, I was going, I mean, 12 weeks, I was going to graduate Al-Anon with honors, because that's how I do it. Mm-hmm. And I did my first step in a week. I was on my way. I was going. Step two, I came to a full stop because it said a power greater than myself. Well, 
you know, I, to, I divorced that power greater than myself. So thank goodness for um, Al-Anon asking me to define a God of my understanding. You know, I've grown in the amount of time that I've been coming back to Al-Anon in, in my understanding of God. At the time that I started, all I could do is say, my God talks to me in nature. When it's, you know, when there's green trees around and when it's like morning breeze blowing and when there are birds chirping and it's a little bit damp in the air, my God talks to me. That's all I could do. I didn't know what, how I defined God. I didn't know how I understood God. But I do, did know that my, do, my God talked to me at that. So I thought, okay, I can do this. And so for that kind of a God, I can definitely let go of, of anything. I can let go of obsessing over things. In step three, my um, sponsor asked me to document the times in my life when no human power could have taken care of me. And I thought, hmm, I should ask my mom because, you know, my mom was right there and she was the, you know, archivist of of my life. And so she told me that there was a time when I was two and uh, um, I had... Um, we were in a busy street corner in India, and uh, she wasn't looking, and Dad wasn't looking. Dad was off somewhere. And I decided to sit down at the edge of a, a, a street, and um, edge of, like, a sidewalk, actually, on, on the, uh, off the street, on the side. And so something said to her to reach over and pull me away from the corner, and she did. She didn't ask any questions. The next second, a bus jumped the curb and went over exactly where I was. And so if she had not pulled me away, I would not be here. You would have a different speaker. And that really sat with me. Because if there was my mom, I thought, would be the person that would take care of me. And she was my rock. And my mom wasn't looking. So there was something that was bigger than even my mom that told my mom to move me away from the curb. And if that power protected me when I was completely um, defenseless at two, then that power will protect me anytime. I can come and speak to you all, and that power is protecting me. I can go anywhere, and that power protects me. So I, that was a huge, huge breakthrough for me. Step four, you know, I um, have a I have a visual memory, and I have a photographic memory, and so I could remember every single thing that I had said to my child. I, had, I remembered every single thing that I had done in my family when I was angry, when I was upset, all the, all the nasty, cruel things that I had said. And so it was not hard for me to see my part. Um, in step six, my sponsor handed me a, a list of defects of character, she said, I was judgmental, I was critical, I was, you know, manipulative. Got that, got that, all of that is good. She said I was greedy. What? Greedy? No, I was ambitious. I was a type A personality, I was ambitious. I was climbing the corporate ladder, thank you very much. I was not greedy. How dare she, right? So, of course, in step seven, I was going to um, prioritize for God, which ones were okay to take away. Greedy was working for me, thank you very much, you know. I was learning, I was taking on new projects, I was getting promotions. Greedy was fine. And so <laughs> this, this, was, this was just, it blew me away. So normally I would walk into work and I would, be, I would be park my car and I would walk in and I'd be like, oh, look at that person. You know that person got a promotion. Why didn't I get the promotion? Why, what do they have? What qualities do they have that I don't have that they, they got promoted and I didn't? Oh, you know this other person? They said something at the um, 
at the meeting the other day, and it was so stupid. I, I'm glad I didn't open my mouth because I didn't look that stupid, you know? I think, I think that my boss is going to, you know, give me a promotion pretty soon. And, and they have a, a team of whatever, and they got, you know, accolades and stuff like that. Why don't I get them? Like, literally, this is what was going through my head while I'm all, like, smiling to everybody, going, hi, good morning. No, that's, this is what was going in my head. So while I was doing step seven, I walk into work, and, you know, that morning, I'm walking in, I'm going, hi, how are you? And in my head, it's going, oh, we're all going to work. We're all going to serve these people that are, that are at work. God took away greedy. What? So since then, I've been able to, you know, sometimes step on the the greedy part of it. But uh, for the most part, it doesn't give me joy as much, which, you know, I'm so grateful for God. But of course, God would take away greedy first. In step nine, I was, um, you know, my amends with my daughter were so sweet. I, um, of course, I went to her and I said, I'm so sorry, mommy um, has been very upset with you and mommy has been very uh, unpredictable with you. And yes, my child knew the word unpredictable. Um, (laughs) um, And then um, she was so sweet. She's like, it's okay, mommy. I love you. And I've just had nothing but that beautiful love and acceptance and, you know, and, and just unconditional um, love from this child. And I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. And um, um, step 10, I, I, you know, I went to a meeting in Florida and I learned about this um, thing called Q-tip, quit taking it personally. And I realized that that was one of the reasons I used to lose it with my daughter, right? Because she would do something and it would trigger that if I was a good parent that I would, she would not be making this mistake because I would have told her something and I would have taught her better. And so when she did that, it always triggered into, I'm not enough. I'm not a good enough parent. I'm not a good enough. I'm not a smart enough parent. I'm not a good parent. I'm not enough, right? And it would trigger that I'm not enough, and immediately my head would fill with rage. When you snap that, that connection of she makes a mistake and I, that means something about me with the Q-tip, Oh my God, it changed it, right? So at that point, if she made a mistake, okay, she's making a mistake. She's going to learn that way. But it doesn't have to mean anything about me. And I think that was huge for me because I was able to start to be um, be a, a little bit more loving, a little bit more kind, a little bit more um, tolerant. So anyway, um, I you know finished my steps and... Um, I still wanted to divorce Gary because he was the he was the alcoholic. If he wasn't an alcoholic, I wouldn't have had to go to Al-Anon. My child wouldn't have had to go to Alatine. Like, you know, it was all because of him. So I was going to divorce him, but in North Carolina, you're supposed to wait for a year. And I was like, darn. So there was a um, tradition study that was going on in, uh, in, in Queen City. And so they were getting together before the meeting, and they were, they were studying traditions as they apply to family relationships. And so one of the things we're going to talk about this afternoon about it. So um, it really, I was like, well, might as well go. This is going to take about a year. There's 12 traditions. It's probably going to take about a month. Um, By the way, it took me 12 months to do my 12 steps and not 12 weeks, and I didn't graduate. (laughs) Anyway, tradition one talked about, you know, what is our our family's primary purpose? And, you know, what occurred to me as my 
family's primary purpose is to grow along spiritual lines. And so if we were supposed to be put together to grow along spiritual lines, not look a certain way, not act a certain way, how would I act as a part of a family that's growing along spiritual lines? That takes away all the expectations that I have that my husband is supposed to be doing his steps a certain way, which, by the way, he's never still done his step nine the way that I want him to. <laughs> but, you know, how can I be an integrating force, you know? And, and then um, tradition, too, talks about there's a God and it's not me. Oh, no. And there is a God that's in charge. There's an ultimate authority, and that is God. And I was like, oh, no, I act like I'm the ultimate authority. And so that brought me down a whole bunch of notches um, because, you know, how do you treat a trusted servant? I learned from y'all. I learned from the meetings how to treat, treat another trusted servant. And if my husband's a trusted servant just like I am, it doesn't make me superior to him. How do I treat another person? How do y'all treat treasurers and GRs and, you know, and folks in the meetings? Tradition three says we're gathered together for mutual aid. And if we're supposed to be growing along spiritual lines, how would I provide mutual aid? Definitely not by expecting perfection, but by understanding and being encouraging and, I, and um, being loving and kind. And what was said was, uh, how about if I treat my family members as fellow Al-Anon members? And so that, was, that gave me a good, I'm a visual person, y'all. So that gave me a good question to ask myself. If I was about to go say something to a family member, ask myself, would I say this to a fellow Al-Anon member? You know, I would not walk up to you and say, are you wearing that? Oh, my God. <laughs> or your hair looks terrible today, right? I would never say that. Oh, my gosh, I'd be mortified, right? But I would say that to my family. And so I was like, oh. How do I treat my family like fellow Al-Anon members? Tradition 5 tells me exactly what I'm supposed to do. If something happens, I work the 12 steps. I understand and encourage the alcoholic. And I give comfort to families of alcoholics, right? So my um, husband, about six years ago, I found out that he had taken on a bunch of debt, and um, I had no knowledge of it, and I had just gotten laid off, and I was like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And we only knew it because our financial advisor fired us. And so I got really mad because he had taken a bunch of debt, and he had not told me anything about it. And he was not cheating on me. He was just trying to, you know, get rich quick. You know how that goes. So I called my sponsor. I said, I want to kill him. I want to kill him right now. And she said, well, we're going to work the steps. And I said, what do I do in the meantime? She said, don't open your mouth. So I worked the steps on my marriage. I worked the steps on this particular thing. And you know, in step four, I got to see that I had not taken ownership of being part of this family. I had not asked him a single thing about what he was doing. He was a stay-at-home dad. I didn't ask him what he was doing. We did not openly talk about it. I was very judgmental about our family finances. So I had a part in this. I chose to be oblivious, right? So I had to take, a, take um, ownership of that. And so what would living amends look like? Well, living amends look, look like we actually would talk about this after I was no longer furious, right? Um, but then that helped me a whole lot. And then what do I do? I understand and encourage the alcoholic. 
You know what it says? I don't take care of responsibilities that he has. If he is supposed to pay the debts off, I don't take that responsibility. But you know what? I understand that he did that for whatever reason, and he had a compulsion, and he never knew how to stop, and I understand him, and I encourage him. So what I said to him was, I'm not paying a single penny of this debt. By the way, if you want to, and he said, I'm, I'm probably going to get a job. And I said, okay, would you like me to help you with your resume? <laughs> it was in Times, Times New Roman, I moved it to Ariel. <laughs> but anyway, so would you like me to help you with your resume? That I can do because I can understand and encourage him. And when he came back and he was like, I don't know if this is going to work. I think you can do it, honey. I think you can do it. So how can I practice God's grace and mercy? Because God doesn't say, oh, you've screwed up one too many times. I'm no longer going to take care of you. Right? So I, how can I practice that grace and mercy and be able to be that loving force in this family that came together for, you know, growing along spiritual lines? Maybe the growing growth along spiritual lines for my husband is how to take responsibilities for his action. How can I help with that, right? And then my mom and my daughter were families of alcoholics. How can I be a loving person? How can I be a comforting person? You know, it's totally different from taking it personally and yelling and screaming. It's how can I be comforting and loving? My mom only went to like one Al-Anon meeting, and I tried to, you know, ask her to go, and I, I tried to take her, and she wouldn't go. She felt like her spiritual beliefs were going to be sufficient. But you know what? <laughs> she would come to me towards the end, and she would like, you know, come to me, and she would be like, "Can I borrow that detachment thing? Because you were you you said something about not gossiping and and then not creating a crisis. Can I look at that detachment pamphlet? Sure, mom, you can take a look at it. You know, and and that is the best that I can do to give comfort and to and you know to provide love and acceptance to my family. In tradition six, it tells me to examine my motives. Oh my gosh, this girl that was greedy, so, you know, money, property, and prestige. Oh yeah, it was all about money, property, and prestige for me, right? What do, what do we look like? Do we look like we're rich enough? Do, does our house look like it's, it's good enough? Do we look like we are enough? Do we look this way or do we look that way, right? What if all of that stripped away? What if I was to look at am I being a good human being? Right? That's what Tradition 6 tells me, is what, what if um, that was the only way that I needed to relate, not through money, property, and prestige. And I'll talk a little bit more about the traditions later on um, this afternoon, but Tradition 11 um, talks about we're a fellowship of equals, and I get to share my recovery. I can't make my husband have recovery the way I want to. It has to be an attraction rather than promotion, Right. And, um, and in Tradition 12, it talks about anonymity, and it talks about um, humility. And um, I went to the Al-Anon International Convention in Vancouver in 2013, and um, I remember that we had this big meeting where there was an Al-Anon and AA speaker and everything, um, and Alateen speaker. And in true Indian form, I left the room and walked up this, like, oh, gosh, it was a massive escalator. So I got on the escalator. I looked around, and there was a sea of humanity coming out of the rooms. There were people from South Africa. There were people from India. And there were people from Europe and from New Zealand and from South America and from all parts of the United States and Canada. 
And I felt like, oh my God, I'm not this little person in Charlotte, North Carolina that's struggling with the effects of alcoholism. I am a part of this worldwide fellowship. I belong. You know why? Because the God that's in me, the essence of God that's in me is in every one of you. And I am home wherever I go in the midst of, you know, my, my partners in recovery. I'm home. I did serve in um, a lot of Al-Anon service, so I got involved in Al-Anon service, um, you know, right pretty much from the beginning. I went to, um, I think it was like two months into the program, and my sponsor took me to this meeting on Thursday night called One Purpose Al-Anon Family Group, and she said, we're going to make this home group. There are guys here. I was like, okay, because there were apparently not many guys in in, uh, recovery at that time. So (laughs) anyway, we did that. And then they were saying, you know, we need a group representative and an alternate group representative. She raised her hand for group representative and raised my hand for alternate. (laughs) I didn't know what a GR was. I didn't know what an alternate was. And she said, here's the service manual. Read that. I was like, okay. (laughs) And then she promptly stopped attending any of the district meetings and and, uh, area meetings. And I ended up going because, you know, I wasn't going to let it fall through the cracks because I was going to look good, right? (laughs) Anyway, so I served as an alternate, and then I served as a GR. And uh, I took a three-year break because my daughter asked if I would please take a break while she goes through high school. And I said, okay. I did. And then uh, went back to be a DR and um, happened to um, get elected as a delegate and went to the World Service Conference in 2019. And Loved, um, you know, being able to serve alongside Sherry and Linda um, during that time for 2019 to 2021. And I serve as an area chair now in North Carolina, Bermuda. And I've just gotten so much more from the recovery because of service. I've gotten so much more. Because every time I go into, do I look good? Am I enough? I have to stop and ask myself if we are serving in the best possible way, and that's all that matters. It doesn't matter whether I am enough. Whether I am the best delegate there was or whether I am the best area chair there was, it's not necessary. It's serving the fellowship, and I think that has gotten me out of my ego and my money, property, prestige, you know, things that I I always tend to focus on. So my talk would have stopped you here, but in um, 2014... My daughter came to me and said, Mom, I've, I've never felt like a girl. I, um, I felt like a boy um, from forever, and I don't feel comfortable in my body. And I um, want you to refer to me as Alex, and I want you to use he, him, and his, and I want to transition. Wow, my only child. I mean, if I had taken it personally, oh my gosh, I would have said, oh, this was my fault. I was not a good, good example of a feminine uh, presence. My husband's fault because my husband was not a good representation of a masculine presence. It would have been all about me. But you know what? Our Tradition 10 says we have no opinions on outside issues. My child's gender identity is an outside issue. You know, my child's gender identity, my child's sexual orientation, it's an outside issue. Because you know what? When I close my eyes and I think about my child and my heart fills up with love, so much love, that it hurts. Gender never enters the picture. 
I never say this is my son or a daughter. I say this is my child. You know, it's like if there was if there was something that you know was about to um, hurt my child, and I moved that you know with an instinct, I moved my child away. I never say this is my son or a daughter. I say this is my child. This is my baby, right? So when I think about it, on one hand, is the expectation that I was going to buy a prom dress for my daughter the expectation that I was going to go wedding dress shopping with my daughter, the expectation that I was going to be in the room when she gave birth to my grandchild. You know what those are? My expectations. On the other side, when I close my eyes and my heart fills up with love, is love. It's pure, unadulterated love. And there there is no expectation when it comes to that, you know? My child is my child. And you know what? Alex is the same amazing, sensitive, intelligent, oh my gosh, scary smart, and wonderful child. You know, and, and we, as a result of this, this was like God gave me an opportunity, you know, to, to really practice step nine. I was not proud of what kind of a mom I was when, when Alex was little. I got to be the mom that I wanted to be. I got an opportunity to be a different mom. So when Alex was going through all of the transition stuff, you know, name change and all that kind of stuff. Oh, by the way, when you're 15 or 16, you're supposed to apparently go through an FBI background check. Did not know that. Um, anyway, so I went and did that. I walked with him everywhere, and we did that. And, you know, when he was having hormone treatments, we did that. When he was needing to have surgery, we did that. Because... There needed to be a parent that was going to be there no matter what. No matter what. And I got to be that mom. I got to define what that mom looks like. And I'm so grateful for God for giving me this opportunity to be that unconditionally loving, strong, like, you know, you can't BS me kind of mom, right? That is who he needed. I needed to be that rock. He needed that. And I'm grateful that I have the opportunity and the know-how, know-how and I had the experience of, you know, having been in corporate America and done every single, like, legal, all kinds of stuff that I needed to do to have the background to do that, you know? God gave me that opportunity, and you know why? Because I was ready. And he was going to be there. My mom um, was diagnosed with lung cancer in uh, 2019, and uh, she subsequently passed away in 2020. And, um, you know, I had to resolve all kinds of abandonment issues I had with her because I had been holding on to those resentments that she abandoned me. And I got to forgive her. I got to truly accept her for doing the best that she could at the time that she, she was doing that. Of course, my son and I are going to talk about um, concepts and how we use those, because we're nerds, um, in taking care of my mom. But, you know, that, that allowed me to be the daughter I wanted to be. You know, that allowed me to be the exact daughter that I would look back and go, I am so grateful that I was the daughter I wanted to be. And I try every day. It's not easy. I try every day to be the wife I want want to be, right? The wife I can be now. And so that, to me, is an opportunity to practice step nine and act differently. 
act differently from my upbringing, act differently from all of those questions of am I enough, am I good enough, am I smart enough? Because God doesn't care. He thinks I'm enough because I am. You know, he just wants me to be that, that force of love and unconditional love in my family's life. So um, during the pandemic, we were trying to, you know, we, we were um, working to get, you know, all kinds of recovery. And I, was, I found myself going downhill. And um, we started a Zoom meeting with some uh, people in North Carolina and some people in uh, Texas. And um, we had, we have, we're still going um, two and a half, well, yeah, two and a half years into it. And I um, asked one of the ladies from Texas to be my sponsor because I noticed that whenever I, I left that meeting, I felt rejuvenated. I felt, you know, that I had this much more to grow and this much more to give and this much more to love. And so I asked her to be a sponsor. And I love that. I love being a part of that amazing group of recovery. I love the uh, opportunity to work with my sponsor. And she's got... 40 years in the program, and I love that because she's practicing this program in all her affairs, and and I constantly need to grow, and that's all that my my God wants me to do is grow along spiritual lines. So I'm going to end with this. I I know that God never gives me more than I can handle, and God's always there for me. And so my favorite line from the last line of the Footprints poem is my favorite. It's it was then that I carried you. Thank you so much.